So it looks like summer has finally, finally arrived with a bit of sunshine in the UK this week. And that can probably mean only one thing. Sadly, it's coming to the end of season two after a whopping 44 episodes, Dan. I know it's been so much fun, hasn't it? We have got through a lot of stuff we talked about. We've covered Bitcoin. We talked about insurers. We've talked about vaccines. We've talked about pride. And it's been a bit of a journey, hasn't it? It's been great. I really enjoyed it. It has. I've really, really enjoyed season two. I think having the slightly broader spectrum of topics of discussions kept it really fresh for us at least. So hopefully our listeners agree with that. I think hopefully quite a lot of the episodes stand up and they're still worth listening to now. So if you missed any of them, worth going back, having a little look at what we've covered, particularly the mini series, I would say the Invest Like a Mini series. A lot of people have said that they've really enjoyed those. So if you've missed any of those, maybe worth going back and having a little look at those, maybe poolside over the summer or something. Absolutely. And obviously the final one of those is this very episode. So hope you enjoy that one too. Totally. And of course, hopefully you're aware, big wrap up tomorrow, Thursday, 22nd of July, 2.30 PM. We're going to be on Clubhouse. So tune in. We'll see how that goes. Really not sure how that's going to go at all. Could be a disaster. Could be a triumph. (laughs) We'll find out. So join us then. And as you have time to reflect over the summer, please do go back, listen to any episodes you missed, leave us a review, let us know what you think we could do differently. Let us know any episodes you want to hear from us next season. We'll see you in the autumn. Have a good summer. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Investment Uncut with Mary and Dan. This week, we are rounding off our Invest Like a mini series, and we are talking about investing like a defined contribution pension scheme, investing like a DC scheme. And joining us for that conversation, someone with vast experience in the pensions industry, who's currently an investment committee member on several DC pension schemes, including Lloyd's and UBS, Mark Thompson. Mark, welcome. Hi. Hi, Dan. Hi, Mary. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the show. Before we kick off, Mark, could you give the listeners a feel for, I guess, your current role, but also your experience in particularly the DC world? Well, as Dan kindly said at the beginning, I'm very old. I've been involved (laughs) in pensions investments for about 35 years, DB and DC, but obviously we're focusing on DC today. I mean, I joined the PRU in the mid-80s and was there for quite a long time. And the roles there that were particularly DC-focused was I helped design or design the DC propositions that Prudential sold to the market as a provider. But I was also a trustee of the Prue's pension scheme and became the first chair of the DC committee for Prue's own pension scheme. After 24 years, I couldn't settle in and I decided to move on and went to HSBC as their first CIO. And that's had a big DC pension scheme of four or five billion pounds. And then in 2019, I left there and went plural as Dan has already said, and I've worked a number of different schemes now, or have done in contract and in single trust, including Lloyd's and UBS. But anything I say today is my view rather than a house view from anybody. Absolutely. Understood. Oh, good to hear it, Mark. So much stuff to get into there. Before we get into all that, why don't you just tell us one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? I've got five children, and they're all grown up, and they've all got jobs, and not one of them is at all interested in anything to do with investment, finance, or pensions. So if you're thinking this blog might be an influencer, I'm not thinking <laughs> <good> of <at> that. <laughs> do they have pensions? 
Are they also enrolled? Or? Oh, yeah. That was a mandatory thing. Either that or they get disowned. <laughs> Good start. Brilliant. So, Mark, should we jump straight in at the deep end here? So, DC scheme investment, what is the sort of guiding philosophy? What rules do you follow on a sort of day-to-day basis? What's the big stuff that you look out for? What gets missed? What gets overlooked? I just think philosophy is a really interesting point. Nobody's born with an investment philosophy in terms of how they go about it. I think your philosophy comes through kind of experience. And I mean, I did a couple of degrees in economics a long time ago in the 80s. And when I left, I could sort of derive the capital asset pricing model from first principles. I assumed everybody walked around with rational expectations and I had faith in econometric models. Then I started work as a fund manager and thought, God, I know nothing. (laughs) Because none of that made any sense. But then it was a few years later on when sort of behavioural finance came out and I thought, hang on a minute, this kind of makes sense now. It's investment and psychology kind of together. And the penny dropped for me about how investment really kind of works. This is important for when you're building an investment strategy or for you as an investor, I think, really. Because if you think about all investments are really you're investing in discounted cash flows, well, in most cases you're investing in discounted cash flows. It's kind of all... What makes those work? And for me, a growth type investment is somebody that believes they can outforecast the market. They've got superior forecasting ability. Whereas a value type investment, or investor rather, is one I think it's all about misprice risk premium, where you're sort of thinking that something's out of favor and it's going to come back. Personally, I've always been more in the value camp. I know it's been a bit out of favor of the last number of years, but I've never had much faith, particularly after my econometric forecasting, that forecasting was a particularly difficult thing to do. There's the economist Galbraith who said, forecasting is easy, but getting it right is almost impossible. So (laughs) you can do forecasts. So I don't think there's one way of doing it, and that's important for when you're putting an overall DC scheme together. I wouldn't say a DC scheme might have it all value. It's about combining different philosophies or approaches together. But my personal one, I'd be more value. But in building a scheme, I try to combine different approaches, philosophies together. And of course, when you're managing a DC scheme, you've got all of the underlying members of that scheme have a pot that's in their own name. And therefore, in some cases, at least, they have views on how their money should be managed. How do you, from a very high level, make sure that you're delivering options that are appropriate for a very vast membership base? It's kind of hard, isn't it? I suppose the membership base, you never really know what they want. And often they don't know what they want either, to be fair. So, I mean, I think the structure of a good D-scheme's got sort of three bits to it. One, it has a well-constructed default strategy. We can talk more about that, I'm sure, a little later. A well-constructed default strategy, which for most schemes in the UK, 90% of the members are in it. Then, given sort of since freedom and choice, then I'd have three, some people call them lifestyles, some people call them life plans, one of which could be the default, where by your kind of, it's like a ready-made meal, isn't it? I don't know how to do it, but I want this at the end. I want to go to drawdown. I want to go take cash or I want to buy an annuity. So you have three good structured lifestyles for that. And then you need the a la carte menu, whereby some members will be more engaged and want to buy investments themselves. And the typical problem you get is you get the people that are really involved and they say, you're only offering me 20 options. I want 400 and that's just not practical from a governance perspective. So I think if a scheme has sort of 10, 15, possibly 20, that, that type of freestyle options, then that's probably enough for most people's needs. 
and it's more sort of practical from a governance perspective for the trustees. But that way, you're kind of hopefully making available an overall proposition, something for everybody. I can see it's, it's kind of tough, that balance, isn't it? Because like you say, 90% people in the default makes sense that a lot of time and effort and energy would be focused on that. But of course, there's a need for a wider proposition as well. And those are your more engaged members anyway. So getting that balance right, I can see that is a tricky one. An interesting statistic I've seen is that although 90% of members are in the default, the 10% that aren't in the default typically account for about 25% of the assets. Oh, that is interesting. That could be a number of different reasons. It could be that as people's pots get bigger, they become more personally interested and want to get more involved in it themselves. I think there's also kind of a generational issue as well. I think as a lot of people who are retiring now have got DB and then a bit of DC. I mean, I'm one of them. But you youngsters, you're probably all DC, aren't you? So therefore, as your pot gets bigger, you'll become more personally involved in it. So I can see defaults. Well, I don't think defaults will never go away, obviously. But I could see the freestyle part becoming a bigger part as the generational it moves through. Which does pose a challenge, doesn't it? Because like you say, you're sort of then competing with some of the big fund platforms, aren't you? Who, like you say, will offer the 400 different funds from everywhere around the world. So can you see a challenge there whether you sort of be pushed to add more and more funds, which then you've got to stay on top of all those funds? It is a bit tricky. Some schemes that I've worked on offer a thing called a partial transfer, whereby if somebody comes and says, look, you haven't really got a Japanese smaller company that only invests in companies that start with B, it's something specific. <laughs> you go, well, okay, we're never going to offer that. But if you want a much wider choice, you can still remain a member of the scheme, but you can take your current kind of pot and move it to one of these platforms, but you still remain a member of the scheme for future contribution. Those type of things I think are quite useful because they're a kind of a release valve for the members that really want more choice. Whether it's right they want more choice is up to them, really. I'd rather do that than put 400 funds onto a DC. Makes sense. And do you think in 20 years of DC, does success look like much more people choosing their own fund? No, I think success is more about people having enough money to retire on. And also we're combining that with the other things that they have, which we're never going to understand. So I think if a member looks at a default strategy and says, I don't know enough about investment, but I've got the idea of what the trustees are doing here. And what I need to do is make sure I'm contributing enough. So they're contributing enough so their pot size gets to the right size. That's success for me because they've engaged with the pension scheme. They've thought about it. They realize there's areas they don't really understand, but they do understand about putting more money in such that their pot will be bigger at the end. So I think that's success rather than they've picked 20 different funds to invest in. And that engagement piece is really interesting. I was going to ask you, Mark, it sounds like you've most often been associated with pension schemes of financial companies. I guess I was interested in the, if you've got a feel for the different levels of engagement from, well, between different financial companies, but also financial versus non-financial. I think that's a bit of a myth. There are some people in financial companies that are really kind of, if you've got an asset management company in the group, the fund managers are going to understand investment. At least you hope they do, don't you? <laughs> but then even in an asset management company, there's the people that work in the back office. When I worked for HSBC, there was all the people in the branches and the call centers. It's a bit more like Tesco's. So I think the vast majority of people don't really understand it. And so the difference isn't as big as you think it is. 
That's also my experience with the DC scheme of a bank and thinking, oh, well, actually, these won't follow the typical 90% in the default rules. And I think we're on something like 88%. So following that exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, how do you think about the challenge of trying to engage people more versus simply accepting that they're not going to be engaged and trying to build something that's good? I mean, where do you land on that? I mean, some schemes sort of are always trying to engage people more, I guess, whereas I suppose the other perspective is, well, they're not going to be engaged, so let's just build something that works for them. Clearly, I think it's good to have an engaged membership. How to get an engaged membership is tricky because it comes down to the concept. When I used to do presentations at conferences, I used to say there are five things that are important in DC. And remember, I'm the investment guy. The first thing is comms and engagement. The second is comms and engagement. The third is comms and engagement. <laughs> then it's investment, and then it's admin. So if you can get people to engage, but coming back to my earlier point, engagement doesn't just mean picking funds. It's actually thinking about how much they're putting in, what they want to do with it in the end, planning. So all those things are important. So you have to engage people, I think, with the right things at the right time. And trying to get people engaged is, I mean, one of the good things I think that's come out over the last few years is all the kind of the growth in ESG and climate change and all those type of things. That is something that I think certainly the millennials anecdotally I've been far more interested in and that's great as a hook to get them more involved in pensions per se because normally if you go to a dinner party and say you're in pensions and investments everybody walks away from you but <laughs> certainly if we're talking about climate change it's more engaging so use that as a tool to get people more interested in pensions per se. And we'll definitely come back to that recent trend. I wondered if we could just ask you to reflect over the time you've been in the pensions industry and perhaps things that worked particularly well or didn't work very well over the years. One of the things that when I first started looking at third party managers I used to do was excessive research and information about how many people they got, what their systems were, how long they've been working. And I just did loads and loads and loads and loads of work. And most of the time it wasn't overly useful in trying to figure out whether they're going to do any good. So in the end, I kind of just knocked it down to three questions. And I'll ask a manager. And the three questions were, how do you think your market works? What's your edge? And how can you prove to me that it's repeatable in what you do? You'd be amazed how many of them couldn't do it in terms of that. So it's focusing down on the important things is one thing I've learned. What else have I learned? Maybe I didn't sell managers quickly enough. So when I sell managers, I disinvested from managers quickly enough when I noticed that they started to drift away from their style, often when a manager underperforms, he then starts to say, well, actually, if I do this extra bit, it will make it better. And you go, well, it might work. But then you're realizing they're going into an area they don't understand. And there's been occasions when I should have said, they're not doing what I bought them for anymore and come out quicker. Is that clear at the time, Mark, do you think, when that's happening? Not always, but it sort of becomes clear. Maybe I got quicker identifying as I got more experience. The flip side of that is that if there's a manager that you think are doing very well, it comes back to this sort of value growth philosophy kind of point. If you think are sticking to their knitting and are going through a rough time, then I've learned to live with them for longer because often when you sell them, you send them right at the point when everything turns. And that's a nice thing. The other thing maybe I've learned is what I insist now when I put reports together is I've got rid of quarterly investment performance. The whole point about how have you done this quarter getting a fund manager to talk to you about a quarterly performance, you might as well say daily. It's kind of pointless. You want to understand longer terms. So look at one, three, five years. Even turn your performance tables around. So it starts with five years and go to three and one. Just to sort of get that longer term kind of emphasis. 
on it. And I suppose the other thing that I've learned over the years, what's really important, particularly from a trustee perspective, is you've got to get your governance structures in place right. The investment world doesn't work in quarterly meeting cycles. You've got to make sure that if something happens, bearing in mind pensions aren't buying and selling every day, but if something happens or you're developing something, that you need a governance structure that allows you to react whenever you need to react rather than I've got a quarterly meeting in six weeks' time. That governance structure is really important. That's really interesting. It's a question we've been reflecting on a little bit, actually. And I always sort of love to joke that it's not the sort of thing that's going to get anyone excited on any given day. It can be quite hard to sit down and be like, right, let's talk about this. Do you find that or do you find it is something that flows quite naturally? The governance point. A conversation about governance, getting on top of it and sorting it out. It becomes an easier conversation when you're talking about a live example. You learn from the doing, if you see what I mean. That worked well. Why did that work well? It worked well because we called a meeting at a short notice and made a decision. So shouldn't we have it such that we can call meetings at a short... Well, if we can't call meetings at short notice, what's the kind of quorum that we need to be able to make that decision such that we don't get caught out? So I think just going and saying, let's talk about governance, I mean, that's not going to make anybody excited, is it? But if you actually say, well, look, we've had a success by doing it this way, or we've had a failure by not doing it, that makes it real. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think it's a shame in a way that you use the word governance and everyone switches off, but you say, should we talk about how we can make really effective decisions? Yeah, exactly. And everyone thinks, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, we should do that. It needs a rebrand. Governance <laughs> yeah, needs a rebrand. Needs no, a re-brand. it probably does. <laughs> Don't tell the governance consultants that. No, <laughs> I know. That probably leads us, Mark, really nicely into the next area we were hoping to explore about decision-making. You mentioned earlier behavioural finance and how that sort of helped you slot things together. And of course, governance and decision-making feeds directly into that as well. Do you have any sort of thoughts or learnings in terms of the right way or appropriate or best robust way to make good decisions? One of the things that I like to do with a trustee board is have an investment belief session when you first get together. And it's like, what do we believe in? And often the worst thing you can do is say, here are the 10 beliefs that we believe in, don't we? (laughs) (laughs) Because then you've told them. That's not me. It's having a discussion and actually having the discussion, then you write up at the end of what your beliefs are. Having the beliefs at the end is kind of good, but it's the discussion that's more important. And so you start thinking about, well, actually, do we believe in passive management or do we believe in active management? Where are we on that? Are there particular asset classes that we just don't want to touch? Have we got a pathological dislike for hedge funds or whatever it is? It doesn't matter. Because then if you actually have these kind of, I don't know, not many, eight of a dozen beliefs, we don't do tactical asset allocation, for example, because we don't think we've got the skills. Could be one. If you've got them, then that's a foundation for everything else. And then when something new comes to it, you say, well, is that consistent with our beliefs? Or that just makes the kind of group aspect of it easier in terms. But the other thing I think about getting good decision-making is you do need good chairmanship of the meetings. And good chairmanship isn't saying, I'm the chairman and this is what we're going to do. (laughs) That's dictatorship. And I may have been accused of that in the past, but hopefully I'm getting better. But it is trying to make sure that everybody around the table gets their view. I know this sounds obvious, but it's like even the people that don't normally say anything, you've got to make sure they're all part of that decision-making process. Because often I find it's the trustees that are less investment literate ask the question and you go, I haven't thought of that. Or I hadn't thought about it in that way. It's the obvious question. You get so caught up in the investment stuff of it. And you go, well, yeah, well, that's a really good question. 
I remember when I was a fund manager, this was the horrible days when you used to go and do quarterly investment meetings. And I've been going to this place for about two and a half years. And every conversation was really between me and the chair of the investment committee, who was the finance director. And after, it was about two and a half years, the guy from the shop floor put his hand up and was going to ask me a question the first time. And I thought, this is fantastic. It's going to work. And after two and a half years, he said, Mark, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah, what is it? He goes, what's an equity? And I thought, I've been talking to this guy for two and a half years and he hasn't really understood. So that was a real lesson about make sure you get everybody involved and understanding what you're doing and say things in a way that everybody can understand. Because if you can't explain it in a way that everybody understands, you probably don't understand it yourself. That helps you better decision making. Other thing I quite like, I've seen it a few places, is getting somebody in deliberately to be awkward, to be a devil's advocate. I mean, you can have disagreements, but it doesn't mean you're fundamentally arguing with each other. It's arguing the point. So I quite like devil's advocates as a way of getting better decisions, just to argue against the consensus. And we've talked about that. And actually, the idea of labelling someone as devil's advocate gives them permission to argue against the consensus. And I think that empowerment almost does help that discussion happen in a more robust way, doesn't it? I think that's right. Yeah, because people are always sort of reluctant to sort of go against the herd, as it were. But if you say, well, actually, I want you to go against the herd, they quite enjoy it then. One thing we've also reflected on is saying it's a fine line between being a scapegoat and a devil's advocate, which I think can also be true. And it's a real challenge there. If it's the same person who's always doing that role, there's a tendency, I find anyway, I'm certainly guilty of it. You sort of roll your eyes and be like, oh, here we go. Here comes the devil's advocate sort of thing. Let's give them their three <laughs> minutes right. and then move swiftly on sort of thing. And that Road it's just so difficult. It's somebody else's turn to be the awkward devil. Yes. That probably works better. Definitely. In relation to belief sessions, I guess one thing we found that works particularly well is forcing people to vote blindly in terms of beliefs. Because, of course, you can hold a belief session where you don't dictate the beliefs at the start, but you say, okay, this subject, what's your belief? And then the dominant person in the room says, well, this is my belief, and everyone else agrees with them. And then you don't actually have a consensus on the belief. This comes back to the behavioural point, doesn't it, really? Because if six people say it's raining outside, even if it's not, the seven person is probably going to say, yeah, it's probably raining, I can't see it. So you do get influence. So, yeah, blind voting is good. One thing we wanted to come on to is talk about some of the big changes and trends you've seen in the industry. And I suppose you must have had a fascinating perspective from being involved in DC back in the 80s at the Pru all the way through to today. What would you pick out as the sort of key trends that have really driven things? Well, thank you for once again emphasizing on my old <laughs> Sorry. Defaults have changed a lot in that it used to be a UK equity passive fund going to a long guilt fund and a cash fund at the end. And I think you know, that's changed an awful lot over the years. Various iterations from different type of equity funds, more global, global with kind of currency overlay, diversified growth funds or those type of vehicles coming in part of the accumulation vehicle. And obviously, since freedom and choice, we've had not just one kind of lifestyle as we used to have before, now we've got kind of three. And I think that is quite a big change. Do you know, I tell you the story about how I explained the new lifestyles to the trustees when I was trying to bring in the three new lifestyles, one targeting, obviously, annuity still, one targeting drawdown, one targeting cash. I went in, I thought, I've got to try and make this sound clever. So I'm going to introduce you today to our new Cerberus strategy. I'm sure you all know who Cerberus is. Cerberus is the three-headed dog that guards Hades from Greek mythology. The point is... It had the same body. So in the accumulation period, up until about, I don't know, was it 10 or 8 years before retirement, the body of all those three strategies was the same, but they had different heads. 
to many women that go to annuity or drawdown or cash. So I called it the Cerberus strategy. I was going to call it after the three-headed dog, be more up-to-date from Harry Potter. But do you know what the three-headed dog from Harry Potter is called? Oh, I can't remember. Fluffy. <laughs> you should never get into your trustees strategy. with a fluffy strategy. No, so yeah. <laughs> it made them Excellent. laugh. <laughs> One thing that's changed a lot is sort of defaults. The other big thing I think has changed, there's two more I can think of. One is when I first started, you had active managers and you had passive managers, and never the twain shall meet. You know, they were quite different. But I think the whole thing's blurring, and I think that's a good thing. So I think more sort of factor investing, and whether that's kind of built within an index, which it can be, never it's cheaper. And you can say you can merge different factors together into an in- growth value, momentum, size, low vol, etc. Now, is that active management or is it passive management? I don't know. It's somewhere in the middle. So I think this whole blurring thing is quite useful because you can focus on going back to your beliefs. If you believe these factors do, do well over the long run, then you can do it in an index, which is much cheaper than doing it actively. And I suppose the last one I can't avoid mentioning, can I really? The big thing that's changed over the last, particularly in the last five or 10 years, is the integration of ESG and particularly climate change into strategies, which... Obviously, I think it's a great thing. Primarily, I think it's a great thing from an investment perspective. It's the right thing to do. I approach it more from the point of view it's about value rather than values. I'm not making a moral judgment here. I'm trying to make sure that my members' investments or the value of the investments are protected against any E, S or G risks. But then you've got the knock-on benefit of it helping with engagement with members. So it's a good thing. Well, it's always nice to introduce a bit of Greek mythology. It always lifts an investment conversation up beyond the norm, doesn't it? So, Mark, final area for us to explore this morning. And rather than reminding you how long you've been in the industry, let's look forward this time and perhaps look on a sort of short term basis over the next 12 months. What are you most excited about? What are you most worried about? What's the biggest risk do you see? Nothing especially like urgent, but I'm always worried on a DC sense that the default investment strategy is right. But that's kind of a perennial kind of worry. Maybe sort of more subtle worries are, you know, we've mentioned about climate change and climate reporting. And obviously, climate reporting is coming in for big DC schemes and then for less big DC schemes from next year. What well, worries me is that it doesn't become just a compliance statement. It's a similar thing with implementation statements, whereby your consultant does it for you and it goes in the back of a report and it's done. What I want is that trustees to actually think about this and try to understand what these risks are and then think about how that gets implemented in terms of their investment strategies and stewardship activities and that kind of thing. So one of the things that I'm quite keen on, I'm on a few of them at the moment, is that when trustees are thinking about climate change or ESG more generally, they have an ESG working group of the trustee to get three or four trustees So you can't spend enough time on these kind of issues in investment committee meetings or in board meetings. But if you get a few of the trustees outside of it to really think through the issues, then I think you get a much better outcome. There's proper engagement with the trustees on these things. So my worry is all this good stuff we're doing actually means something rather than it just being a compliance thing. That's one worry. The other thing in this sort of similar but different vein is about impact investing. I think impact investing is often labelled as kind of a niche activity. It's a bit like what ESG was 10 years ago. I think the narrative needs to be widened. I think lots of investments that you do, what pension schemes can do, 
can give you a good financial return and have an impact. So rather than just saying it's only about funds where you can measure it to the nth degree and exactly clear about what the impact is, there is definitely a place for those. But I think the whole impact narrative needs to be wider in terms of what are the impact of all the investments you're making? Do you really understand that? And that's something I think I'm worried that won't get developed enough. And actually, that's a really good analogy to ESG 10 years ago, where it's been a really interesting evolution, hasn't it? So you 10 years ago asked a manager, what do you think about ESG? And sometimes you were having to describe to them what ESG were, because it was a sort of new phrase and all that sort of stuff. And then as they started realising they needed to talk about it, the example I often got, because I've most often been involved in equity research, you'd get lots of governance examples, because actually, when you boil it down, they've always had to take governance into account if they're a good investment manager, but they just didn't know how to label it, really. And then you get the sort of evolution. You then get the risk of the greenwashing and managers knowing what to say and not necessarily doing it. But it does feel like actually that evolution could equally happen in the impact space. When I first started asking managers about ESG, this was oh, a long while ago, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, yeah, I used to get three type of answers. I say, can you explain to me how you're incorporating the management of ESG risks into your process? And it wasn't just equity managers, everybody. And Three types of answers. Some managers were excellent. At that time, there weren't that many of them, but they were excellent. They could explain how they're incorporated in an evidence base to me, how they did it. The vast majority of the managers just looked panicked at that particular point. Then you could see after about a few seconds of thought, a little light bulb would come on and they go, ah, they've got a man called Brian on the third floor that does that. And I thought, well, that's just a terrible answer because Brian isn't my fund manager, you are. And then nowadays, Either Brian's in the room or they can answer themselves much, much better. The worst ones were the American bond managers, actually, in those early days, where they just looked to me and went, wow, I had no idea. But as you say, it's a journey, and I don't criticise anybody for that. It's just we're learning as we gradually move forward. And I think, coming back to your point about impact, I think it would be the same thing. As people understand it more and talk about it more, it will become more familiar. And it goes back to the point about regulation and compliance a bit, doesn't it? Because in the climate sense, regulation has had a role, I think, in pushing that journey along. But it is a bit of a balance because there comes a point, like you say, when regulation can tip over into being compliance box checking. And my experience, people don't love being told what to do. So regulation has its limits in terms of what it can do. Don't get me wrong. I am really pleased that the regulation has changed because it means this conversation at least happens in the boardroom. It's then what you do with it is the important point. So that it shouldn't, in my mind, just become a compliance statement. It's think about it. Okay, Mark, as we start to wrap up the conversation then, what's the one thing you'd like listeners to take away from this whole conversation? Well, if any of my, as you keep telling me, long experience, any of the things I've said or done are vaguely useful to anybody, then that's a success. If not, I hope they just enjoyed it. <laughs> Learn something about Greek mythology and Harry Potter, maybe, if nothing else. Nothing <laughs> else, indeed, indeed. Mark, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? Maybe there's two things. One is, I think a lot of people almost think about investment as a science. And I think it's as much an art as a science. Even I did econometrics, people get false comfort from numbers. The tracking, the VAR, or whatever it is, they're helpful. But I think a big dose of common sense, does it smell right when you're doing this, is kind of something that's important. Wasn't it that Canadian statistician, I can't remember his name now, who said all models are wrong, but some are useful? Something like that, wasn't it? George Box, I think his name is. Was yeah. it? Oh, well done. So I think that kind of, it comes back to the behavioural point, doesn't it? I mean, if it was all rational expectations, it would be easy, but it's not. And maybe the other thing that I think, and this comes back to the conversation we're just having, I think it's underappreciated, is stewardship. 
I think if you say to most trustees, what is stewardship? It's saying, well, it's making sure we know how our managers, our equity managers have voted. And that's just too narrow. Stewardship is as you as an asset owner, how you engage, and particularly with your agents, which are the fund managers in most cases, because you don't get involved in the issues of equity and debt. What are they doing? And as an asset owner, you should be on top of them all the time, not just fall into this compliance tick point. So I think that needs more development in that area, please. Final question, Mark. Any good recommendations for us, books or podcasts or anything, really? Well, I think this is about the first podcast I've ever been on or listened to, really. I'm assuming I'm going to listen to it later. <laughs> we hope you want to listen to it. <laughs> books. Well, because I've said that I'm quite like this behavioural finance thing, I quite like books that talk about or explore how people behave. So, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Malcolm Gladwell, the Canadian journalist, although his books, Tipping Point, you know, Blink, that type of stuff. I've recently read a book, and I think you may have, Mary, given the recommendation that sent him, I got it. It's called Give and Take by Adam Grant. Dowd mentioned it to To overly condense it, it's a proposition where individuals are categorised into sort of givers, takers, and matchers. And it's, it gives examples of how these categories of individuals fare in work and in team-building scenarios with some quite interesting results. But I found it quite an interesting book. And the other one that I've just started... It's called The Delusion of Crowds, Why People Go Mad in Groups. Interesting. It's a modern update of what was Madness of Crowds that was done by Charles McKay in sort of 1840-ish or something like that. But it's kind of a modern version of that, an update. Oh, great. That's quite interesting. I'm only about two chapters into that so far, but I'm enjoying it. Well, we'll follow up. How long does it usually take you to read a book, Mark? We'll follow up at the end of the summer, or is that... It's quite a big book. (laughs) (laughs) We'll follow up later in the year (laughs) to see how you found that one. (laughs) Cool. Yeah, we'll check those out and get them in the show notes so other people can check those out as well. But Mark, it's been a fantastic conversation today. Thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Given it's the Friday before the football final, can I just make a prediction? (laughs) 3-0 to England. And this will prove why forecasting is difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. <laughs> that is brilliant. I think we might run that at the start of the episode. That'd be brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So what a fascinating and fun conversation that was with Mark just now. Joining us to debrief on that conversation, we have our head of DC and also chair of the PLSA DC committee, Laura Myers. Laura, welcome. Thanks, Mary. Hi, Laura. Hi, Dan. So how would you put some of that in the context of the work we do with sort of all the DC schemes? And what were some of the interesting things you picked up on there, Laura? A really good session. Definitely Mark's years of experience stand out. <laughs> I think what really kind of resonated with me is kind of some of the stuff that he was saying about success. I think in DC, while investment is important, it is all about the contributions. And I really liked his focus from an investment perspective, less focus on the quarterly performance, more focus on that long term, and particularly those thoughts around governance. And I think sometimes within DC, it can be a smaller sibling of DB, and it gets a little bit pushed to the side. And I think over the more recent years, we've seen more focus on DC and better governance of DC schemes. So I think those observations were really good. And also that the compliance point. He talks about the tick boxes on TCFD being a bit of a concern of him. And I think that's something that probably resonates with everybody that manages DC schemes. We've had really bad experience of kind of compliance with things like annual chair statements that have turned into big legislative monsters. So 
how we kind of lift people and make them think about the key issues and the key risks rather than just ticking those boxes. And I think that's particularly important on the kind of things like climate risk rather than thinking about TCFD. And he was suggesting things like having a working group to look at that. And I know a couple of my clients have done that. And I think that's a much more effective approach. So I think there was lots that we could take away from that, lots that resonated with me. And I suppose it's probably an ever-present challenge, isn't it, with DC particularly, where you've got the individual members of the DC scheme, but you've also got all the sort of regulatory aspects and the sort of trustee decision-making. Do you find that those two tend to work fairly well hand-in-hand, or is it always a bit of a challenge to kind of look through the governance, look through the regulations and focus on the members? Unfortunately, I think it's got worse. I think the legislation is just kind of layered on top of it, and people are stopping and not thinking about the members as much. It's almost kind of like going through the annual chair statement, actually, when you do that, is that actually benefiting members? It's not really. It's just like documenting your governance, documenting what you've done over the year. We spend a lot of time documenting and not enough time on the actual bits of the strategy that matters. Amazingly, these costs of annual chair statements, when you factor in like consultants, lawyers, it can be almost as much as a strategy review. And where do you want to spend your time? You want to spend it on thinking about the default the investment strategy of members, because ultimately it's that and things like engagement, how much they contribute in, that's actually going to matter. Good governance is important, but I think not in the ticks boxy way that we've come about it in DC. Thinking about asset owners, do you think that most DC schemes sort of think of themselves as asset owners? Do they behave like an asset owner or are they sort of more of the mindset of like a provider of funds to their members? Because it's an interesting mix of those two things, isn't it? It's a bit in the middle. I think it is in the middle. I think the asset owner point comes across more strongly in the default. And I think fortunately, most of our clients spend a lot more time on that. On the kind of self-select or the freestyle range, I think you're right. Most people think about trying to provide that kind of choice and options, which is a bit more providery. It was quite interesting to hear Mark's comments on that earlier, actually, about having kind of things like loud members who always want a little bit extra. And I think we see that in a lot of the financial services organizations that you often get more senior people, people with the larger pots that are potentially complaining and wanting broader options. So I do think that freestyle, actually, that will get broader. And I think we're seeing that now with kind of the focus on ESG, people are offering more ESG options to kind of link those two points, actually. Really recently with a client, we actually had a member that asked to partially transfer out of the scheme because their ethical fund didn't meet their ethical beliefs. So I think some of the point that Marx was making about having the option such as password transfer away means that those members that maybe have strong, certain, very specific ethical beliefs, or they want that fund that invests in stocks beginning with a B, they've been able to kind of transfer out and have that punishable transfer option to have that choice, but also being able to still invest in the scheme, still have some of the funds at institutional prices. I think that's the big difference that we need to educate members. It's the benefits and the cost efficiencies of having the schemes that we have put in place at institutional prices with clients, because it is such a vast difference between that and retail funds where you get the full range of choice. That's such an interesting point. And I suppose I was just reflecting on a conversation with a client of mine recently, which is a DB scheme, so slightly different, but they were sort of discussing the extent to which they asked members for their views because they thought, well, once we have members' views, we will then have a responsibility to reflect those views in what we do. And so they clearly wanted to engage with members, but they were just thinking very carefully about how that worked. I suppose in DC, I guess you've almost got two trains of thought. You either say, well, you can partially transfer out, so we don't have to offer you everything that every member wants within the scheme. But clearly you might then give up institutional 
prices or you say actually we need to engage and listen to our members but we then need to follow through with that do you have a feel Laura for the split between those two trains of thought that might develop over time yeah I think we'll see more people offering more and I think it's very similar to what you said on the DB side people want to engage probably more on the DC side they want to hear members views but it's where you can reflect that as you said so you probably can't reflect all of that within the default so it's kind of then leads you to free choice and thinking about balancing kind of the governance responsibilities of having a broader fund range and a broader fund choices for those members that want it and then having things like partial transfers. I think partial transfers are becoming more popular because actually, as we were saying, if you have too many options, I think Mark cited lots of his schemes of between 20 to 20. I mean, I have some schemes that have even less, five, for example, choices because they don't want to confuse members because if you think about it, we're in a privileged position that maybe we're a bit more investment literate and maybe a small proportion of memberships are investment literate but actually for the vast majority of people you give them choices between equities and bonds and different flavors of equities and this is not something that they come across in their day-to-day investing they want simple decisions made for them so I think we won't see massive increases in free choice ranges but I think we'll see a few more things like ESG choice. You can see it's a real balance between those two extremes, isn't it? Because obviously we've had the sort of make my money matter campaign, really trying to engage people to say, look, your money matters, where it invests, it does make a difference. Is it aligned with your values? All great questions, sort of pushing in the direction of making more choice available. But then like we're saying, the asset owner perspective is more taking the perspective of saying, how do we think one should be best invested for our members? And obviously the whole point about scale and institutional scale actually does matter quite a lot sort of on that side. It feels like we're at quite an interesting time in the sort of where the balance is between those two perspectives over the next decade. Definitely. And I think trustees are grappling with this quite a lot. That fiduciary responsibility is our ultimate goal here. Everybody wants to make sure members get a good outcome. And actually, when we survey members and with lots of our large clients we've seen, most people genuinely do care about getting a good outcome Like on their priority list. That is top. It's like, yeah, make sure we get financial returns but at the same time we've just seen ESG and more recently actually through COVID S come up quite a lot in terms of what people care about so they would put that in terms of how corporates are caring about their people etc those kind of things have really had priorities over the last few years with members so I do think some of the points that we raised earlier about impact investing etc that's going to come up more and more I think we're going to see more flavors of that even within the default potentially. A question I always wonder about on DC I mean I spent a little bit of time working in Australia and obviously that's a bit more of a mature DC market where you've got a small number of really large superannuation funds who genuinely are sort of huge asset owners focused on the default basically. I've always wondered, I mean, is that how you see the UK market going in sort of 10, 20 years? Or do you see this choice piece making it different enough to that, that it won't go that way? I think they're quite different markets, as you were saying. Within Australia, members actually can choose between the different supers as well. So that's quite a different point. Like if we go down the the route of consolidation, I definitely think there will be more consolidation. We're still in a an environment where the actual employer is choosing the scheme and choosing the offering. So members don't get that wider choice. So I think that's why choice in the UK is probably more important. And one of those things that was linked to that was actually when they did auto-enrollment reviews, they found that it's a really difficult financial choice. This we're not pensions actually isn't that easy. How much do you contribute? Where do you invest it? It's quite complex. So actually having help for people and having the employer take that responsibility was felt that was quite important. So in terms of that consolidation point, I do think there are 
a number of schemes out there that are probably badly run and should be consolidated. But I think there's quite a lot of very strong DC schemes in the UK at the moment that are providing very good value for members, extra benefits. You know, we've got schemes with underpins, guaranteed rates, etc. So I think there will be a broader market than in some of the ones in Australia, etc. And if there wasn't, I think I would want to advocate for members' choice. I'd want to make sure that we had a competitive market. Thanks, Laura. Was there anything that Mark said that I guess surprised you or that you, I guess, have a different viewpoint or you see a different experience across the schemes that you work with? I think probably one of the most surprising things was his passion for engagement. I thought that was quite interesting. Comms and engagement was his top three before investment. So I don't see many people actually in the industry focusing on this enough. I think we try and do engagement, but we do it quite badly. I think this is something that maybe we could take a bit of a call of action on, which is the importance of communication engagement, the importance of people understanding the right level of contributions. On the investment side, I think some of the things that he was saying about looking forward and the trends, I definitely agree with what he was seeing there. But I'd probably just add in things like liquids. So we're seeing more and more schemes actually think about using the kind of assets that they use on the DB side in DC. So we're seeing several kind of large own trusts, a few non-commercial master trusts actually investing in illiquids, be that kind of pooled funds now as well. So it's starting to be able to be accessed by smaller DC schemes. And we've also got the Bank of England working on new fund structures to make illiquids a bit easier in DC. So I think that kind of move into illiquids is probably kind of another trend that I'd probably add there. That's the long-term asset fund, is it, that you're talking about there? Yeah, it is, yeah. Do you think that's close to being a reality? Yeah, there's definitely been lots of conversations over the last few months with myself. I know Mark's been part of that group as well. So I do think that they are listening to all of the operational challenges in DC and that they do want to try and crack this. I mean, the recent consultations that the government's put out is very keen on consolidation to invest in kind of UK infrastructure. And I think actually the problem's not consolidation. The problem is the operational challenges that the Bank of England Working Group's trying to fix. So I'm hoping that that is actually what's going to drive it because even the very large schemes, when they try and invest in these asset classes, there's a lot of operational hurdles around the dealing cycles and the pricing challenges of these asset classes marrying with the daily dealing aspect of DC. So I guess engage with members, engage with managers and look out for liquids maybe as the three top tips there. Perfect. Laura, that's been a really great conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, guys. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.